0: So it was about this time, 17 years ago, I was an 18-year-old in Mission Viejo, California, and it was the final home game before playoffs. It was senior day of my senior year in high school. And uh, this day happened to be my official last career at bat in my high school career. We had a stacked team uh, where a handful of my fellow teammates became Division I athletes. One of them even got to be a national champion uh, that following year at Cal State Fullerton, one of the top baseball schools in the country. So needless to say, we had a really, really good team, and I was not one of the regulars. And uh, But on this day, there I was, right at the end of the season, given a chance for a final at bat because... it was senior day and they were highlighting seniors and I relished the opportunity on that day uh, near the late in the game a shaggy left-hander from Dana Hills High School the surfer school in the area was on the mound and his first pitch to me was a fastball down and away and I fouled it straight back. And I was so frustrated because I hit it really hard, just missed it, and I knew this was one of my favorite pitches. I kind of had a looping right-handed swing. I was a switch hitter, but on the right-handed side, I had a looping swing, and I knew this was one of my favorite spots. And internally, I was just like, throw that pitch again. The next pitch, he did, and I did not miss it. Uh, I crushed the ball to right center field. It was one bouncer to the wall. I I rounded the bases to second base, stood up easily, and was just so stoked. And the crowd is going wild. I mean, there's nothing like a senior seizing senior day, right? And as I look, at stand on second base. I'm filled with joy, keeping my game face on, right? Like not looking too excited. I'm I'm glowing internally, but, you know, I'm keeping it professional. But as I looked out into the crowd, I could see my parents just, you know, hooting and hollering and high-fiving and going going wild. And as I was so, you know, feeling these, this the sense of triumph at second base, it was really my attention gazing at my parents and just so thankful for them, so thankful for the gobs of money that they had invested into me through the years in this profession, or in this pursuit of baseball. Thankful for the many, many, many hours that they had invested into me. What I call their perfect streak, because the best of my ability to remember, I'm pretty sure they did not miss a single game of mine of my high school career. And you see, one of the deepest family values in my family was that sense of support and loyalty. Like my family is supportive and loyal. And as I stood at second base, totally triumphant, I was so grateful that they were celebrating with me. Uh, Last week, we began our series, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and we are operating this series from the basic premise that it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Uh, We unpacked lots of things in that, but one of those key insights is that all humans are created in the image of God. Uh, And as image bearers of God, we are both physical, we are social, we are spiritual, we are intellectual, and we are emotional beings. We are this interconnected whole self. They actually don't operate in different compartments. We are actually this whole self is created in the image of God. And with that perspective, we believe that God wants to transform all aspects of our being, making us more and more like Jesus. And so last week, and then these next five weeks, we are devoting some time to explore our emotional health because we believe that God is wanting to take us on the journey, especially of living out more fully the first and second greatest command, according to Jesus. When he was asked that question, here's what he said. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this of your neighbor as yourself, there's no commandment greater than these. He was asked for the single greatest command, and he connected them together this vertical whole love for God and this horizontal love for others as ourself. And so the greatest purpose of this series is to engage a pathway of transformation where we are really becoming people of increasing love to God, but even maybe even more so this emphasizes the horizontal love that we want to have towards others. Again, maybe you're joining for the first time. Last week, we said that if this series is going to have impact in our lives, there were three crucial uh, kind of aspects of how we dive into that. One is that there is an invitation in this series to no facades. And uh, that may be especially hard for us if you're in and around the Prairie Village area, area which most of us are. You might know that Prairie Village is called Perfect Village. Perfect <coughs> Village. I really believe there is beyond above what is maybe the normal suburban culture across the country, maybe in a specialized way. Um, In Prairie Village, there's just kind of this cultural milieu that, hey, everything's good, that that there's no problems in people's lives, which of course is not true. We all know that we have challenges, and so there are cultural strongholds in our area that say, hey— If you've got issues, just don't let anybody know. Just have the facade. Make sure everything looks and feels good. This series is an invitation to say, you know what? It's okay. (laughs) It's okay if there are challenges in your life. And as we face that reality, God can actually take us on a journey to bring healing there. So the first invitation, no facades. The second invitation is to do the hard work uh, because what won't change us is if we listen to these things on Sundays and go, cool, that felt good, that sounded good, I'm going to go on with my life. That actually won't produce change. And so there's an encouragement even when we examine hard things, uh, if we're willing to do the hard work, that opens us up. To a new journey of transformation. And so if we won't do the hard work, uh, we shouldn't expect much. And so there's this invitation to not having facades and to doing the hard work. And then the third is the invitation to spiritual discipline. And the reason we say that is there's a part for us to play on this journey and yet Christian formation throughout the centuries is super clear. We do not change ourselves. We can't self-will ourselves to be the best me or the best you. Like There's lots of those narratives in our culture, and they are not Christian in their origin. They're actually not uh, what we believe to be most true of how the world works. We instead believe that it is the Spirit of God That it's God's presence and power, his love and his mercies, that there is hope for change, but it's found in the person and the presence of God. And so spiritual disciplines are the our part to show up, right? To make ourselves available for God, but it's a trust and it's a reliance upon God to then bring change in and through us. And so the discipline invitation is to say, open yourselves to God. So no facades, do the hard work and open ourselves through the disciplines for God to change us. All right. So that's where we're headed. That's where kind of our backdrop. And this morning, I want to make sure you know where we're headed. I began with a story from my family of origin because this morning, our big idea is this. In order to go forward in spiritual maturity, we must be willing to go backward and explore our family of origin. In order to go forward, we must go backward. And really influential throughout this series, but maybe even particularly this morning, is Pete Scazzaro's work, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I want to name that up front. We're really reliant on on some of the great work he has done, so I'm excited about that as we navigate this discussion. So a first note on common language. What do I mean when I say family of origin? Our family of origin is the particular family, caretakers, and siblings a person grows up with, which is most commonly our biological family or an adoptive family. For me, it was my biological family. I have a very small family. So there's my mom and dad, Brooks and Cynthia. And then I have one younger brother, Tyler, who's two years younger than me. Uh, interestingly, we have no biological cousins. Uh, my dad has two older siblings. My mom has one older siblings, and for various reasons, none of them ha- ended up having children. So we have a small family of origin. Now, all of us have some form of family of origin, and let's also go to the scriptures to navigate there. So, if you would pull out your Bible to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and go to chapter thirty-seven, we're going to see a family unit, a family of origin there that, to say the least, has a lot of dysfunction. Um, and And so we're going to kind of navigate with the, the person of Joseph. So Genesis chapter 37, listen what it says there. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, pause before we go any further. Bilhah and Zilpah are actually better seen as concubines uh, Jacob actually had two other wives, so Rachel and Leah, and then these were two other concubines. So we have a challenging setup of a family of origin, all right? For uh, females in the picture, for Jacob is not a good thing. And we see Joseph tending his flocks with his brothers, and apparently in the setup of the story, they weren't doing their part, and so he kind of goes back to Jacob, his dad, and narcs on them. So we've got a fun setting of dysfunction, all right? Let's continue. Verse 3, It's now, Israel, another name for Jacob, he was both first Jacob and then God renamed him Israel. So now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been bored to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind uh, word to him. So How does this sound for your family unit? I don't know what comes to mind for you, but this is a pretty challenging one, right? So we have a polygamous marital setting, which in the Old Testament, God allows for polygamy, but there are zero cases where polygamy throughout the scriptures end up well, right? As a family unit, it is never good. That goes completely away in the New Testament, uh, and it's not a good setup, so we've got that. We have open favoritism going on between Jacob and Joseph, and it's even represented in this uh, very expensive, ornate robe that he buys for him. How would you like that? The very clear favorite, uh, not fun. And then, of course, flowing out of that, you've got a major sibling rivalry and envy, right? That's kind of what happens there. So this is not good. Now, we're not going to keep traveling. There's actually 14 chapters uh, devoted to the story of Joseph and how it unfolds. But just to summarize real briefly, if you are familiar with his story, it gets far worse. His brothers trap him. They sell him into slavery, and then they go back to their father and lie to Jacob that he was killed by uh, a wild animal. And these brothers keep that secret for 10 years. So let's add a few layers of violence and a layer of long-term lying to this family of origin. And we can very clearly see this is dysfunctional. This is really challenging. Now, here's the thing, though. This family, uh, Joseph, did not show up in a vacuum. All right. Instead, he is a part of this longer line of some dysfunctions in the family of origin. And this is a really important family of origin. This is the patriarchs of the people of Israel. So just to summarize here, check out the picture on the screen. There's a line of the patriarchs, and we see some of these dysfunctions playing themselves through. So real quickly here, Abraham, the original patriarch of the family in Genesis 12, we see that he twice in his story lied about his wife Sarah being his sister. How would you like that, spouses, if your spouse named you as their sister instead of their wife? Not good. Next, Isaac and Rebecca's marriage was just simply characterized by lies. And Jacob, well, his name means deceiver. And uh, for years he lived into that. Check out the chapters prior to Genesis 37. Another one that comes through continually in the patriarchs is favoritism. Abraham arguably favored Ishmael over Isaac. He actually asked at one point in Genesis 17 for God just to let the blessing fall on Ishmael instead of Isaac. Um, and so he was arguably favoring him. Isaac clearly favored Jacob's twin. So Esau and Jacob, Esau was the stronger, skilled hunter. Abraham loved Esau. He did not like Jacob so much. And lots of pain uh, flew out of Jacob because of that. And then we see Jacob, though, perpetuating the same thing that happened to him, which is he heavily favored Joseph. So we have favoritism. We also see some trends of brothers cutting each other off. So Isaac and Ishmael uh, separate ways and kind of lose contact for the most part with each other. Jacob, after deceiving Esau on two major occasions, has to flee for his life because Esau is about, Esau's about to kill him. And so they lose a few years unreconciled. Thankfully, they did reconcile later. And then once more, we see Joseph's story, who when he is betrayed and sold uh, to slavery into Egypt, uh, for 10 years, he has no contact with his brothers. So brothers being cut off keeps perpetuating. And then finally, poor intimacy in marriage. Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Never good. Isaac had simply a horrible relationship with Rebekah. And then as previously mentioned, Jacob had two wives and two concubines. So here's how we're summarizing all of this. Don't miss this point, all right? Here's a key principle of our family of origin. The blessings and sins of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. And I want to say that one more time. So the blessings and the sins of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. Joseph and none of us, like Joseph, none of us appear on the scene of human history in a vacuum. We are part of a complex network of our family systems and relationships. And what we can see in the family of origin realities is so much of the dysfunctions, the natural default is to get them passed on. And there's fascinating scripture that kind of supports that or or helps to unpack that idea. In Exodus chapter 34, you can turn there or you can just hang with me. We'll have the words on the screen in a moment. God speaks to Moses. So after the people of God have been in Egypt, they're even in slavery there for hundreds of years. God delivers them out of that. Moses is this key leader for that uh, movement. And as he reveals himself to Moses in this circumstance in Exodus 34... It says this at beginning in verse six, as he, the Lord passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious rebellion and sin. Yet, yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And I don't know about you, but as I hear those words, on the face of them in English, it sounds really harsh. Like, hold up, I'm getting punished for stuff that my parents did? That is a really challenging context. But in the original Hebrew, there's a much deeper nuance that points us to understanding this word punish in this context as tends to be repeated. So it tends to be repeated. Simply what happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. Rather than God making this happen in you and through you, right? That's what we want to resist. It actually just simply tends to be repeated. Now, Skizera remarks how often we see generational patterns of sin. Things like in abuse and divorce, in alcoholism, in addictions, in poor marriages, and runaway children, in mistrust of authority. There's lots of things that kind of fall into this. And scientists and sociologists have long debated for decades, is this like a nature DNA thing? Is there something imprinted on us? Or is it more of a nurture, an environmental reality, or is it some of both? And to be honest, the Bible doesn't fully answer the question. It simply names it as a mystery. But there is an observable reality, and it's a crucial eye-opener for us and a place that I want us to push the pause button this morning. And the first pause is to recognize, again, that both the blessings of our family of origin and also some of the curses and challenges, if we use the the language curses from the Bible then— That's what's going on in our family of origin. And so when we analyze what's going on in our family of origin, we need to know that. We need to become more aware of that. And so the reality is to all our lives, no matter how great or how wonderful you feel like your upbringing was, or maybe it's it's swinging way on the other end in massive trauma and dysfunction, maybe you're somewhere in between that spectrum. The reality is to all of our families, they've passed on some beautiful, wonderful, life-giving culture and ways of doing things. But they've also operated in and done some things that were harmful or challenging, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Things have been passed on. Let me try to give you a personal example from my family in a simple way uh, that comes from this family of origin. And and we really want to keep digging here. There's going to be so much in this series that, that kind of keeps continuing to be unpacked because of our family of origin. My hope in this example is that it's a little bit of a two-sided coin, so you can see in one example two sides of the same coin. So it's this, that growing up, I rarely saw my parents fighting. Like, I just didn't see them fight with each other. And over the course of a good 10 or 15 years, as I've entered into this conversation on a few different occasions, I have really tried hard to go, okay, when can I remember like my mom and dad really going at it uh, for an argument in front of us? And I just can't draw up one of those moments. Like, I just don't remember them. I have no doubt that they fought, okay? I have no doubt, knowing my own marriage, knowing other marriages, knowing the reality of people, that conflict is a real thing. And I know that they had conflict. But I simply don't remember any trauma or chaotic moments between them in their marriage. Now, the blessing of this is obvious, right? Like, as a child, I viewed my parents' marriage as safe and secure. I never really questioned their love for each other. And again, as best as I can remember, I don't remember having, uh, like, anxious thoughts or worries or fears of the stability of our home, because thankfully, it just seemed like their marriage was really healthy and they didn't fight. Now, the flip side of the coin um, is I would also say I don't remember them really working through a disagreement or a conflict in front of me and my brother. Uh, they must've figured this out in their bedroom afterwards or after we went to bed at night. I mean, I don't know when they worked this stuff out, but I just don't have very many memories of like, oh yeah, this was how they navigated through healthy conflict. And so the challenge of this side of the coin is going into adulthood, going into my marriage. I'm now married almost nine years. I did not really have much of a model for how to navigate conflict in a healthy way in front of others because I didn't see it. It was as if my parents' uh, marriage just magically worked, which we know is not the case. It's not the case for anyone. And so one of the challenges, my current reality, as we have three young kids, four and a half, two and a half years old, and then six months old, is how do we learn how to model conflict in a healthy way when we disagree in front of our kiddos? And then how also to know, you know, sometimes conflict reaches a places like, all right, we can't solve this right now. Let's pause and do this on another occasion when the kids are not in the room, right? That is certainly a part of healthy conflict. But how is that navigated? I did not have a model for this. So here's where we get a little bit more practical for you, hopefully. As we begin to analyze and think through our family of origin, the first step is becoming aware. Because the reality is when we look at our family of origin, we can try to pretend that everything works that way there, but guess what? It doesn't. Like our family of origin is actually the most impactful place of belonging that we will ever find ourselves in. Again, even if it's a really dysfunctional or traumatic past, there's ways that has shaped and formed us. And so we've got to become aware of some of those patterns so that we can move in a different direction. And so the first action step for us as a spiritual family, what I want to invite you into this week, is the exercise of naming your family's Ten Commandments all right? Or your family's 10 unbiblical commandments, if you will. Uh, Jacob in a moment is going to put a across a resource to you. So on your on the thread in our Facebook uh, account, Jacob's gonna put this in right now, it's a link to Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. This is actually just a PDF, it's free, it's online, and uh, it actually comes from uh, a retreat that Pete and Jerry has done, and they've done this type of retreat like dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times across the country, so free resource here. Um, so click that, if you will, as you see it in the thread. He's gonna post it even a couple times, he might post it later as well. We really wanna make sure we. To get this into your hand. So in that PDF on page seven, uh, there's actually a couple pages devoted or a single page devoted to this 10 commandments issue. And so what it means is we take 10 broad categories from our life. So example, money, conflict, sex, Grief and loss, expressing anger, right? These are broad categories of how all of our families choose to do those things a little bit differently, right? So what you're doing in this moment is you're taking these 10 broad categories and you're gonna examine something like money. How was money handled in your home? Was there this sense of scarcity mindset? Like when you think of growing up, and imagine the years especially of when you're eight years old to 12 year old, that might be the most helpful, like if I can get back mentally, emotionally into those years. What did you experience in your family of origin around money? Was there never enough of it? Was there so much and it was real careless in spending? Did you feel like your, your parents had, had great wisdom in their money? And so what you're going to do in the con, you know in commandment number 1 money, you're going to name two or three observations that you think about. Hey, this is how I see saw my family. This is how I experienced my family handling money. And you're going to go through 10 different uh, broad categories that are listed on that page. Again, it's going to take a little bit of time. uh, And the spiritual discipline that we're really getting invited into here is journaling. I'm not a a big-time journaler personally, uh, but it's really hard to engage these just just mentally without actually jotting things down. You'll get a ton more traction, uh, and you've got to position some time, a good half hour, an hour on maybe two or three occasions this week to re-enter into this exercise. What are these 10 commandments that this is how my family does things? Those are the type of observations, right? Like my family, it's scarcity mindset or my family, we were doling out money like nobody's business, right? That's what you're trying to dig into, okay? So as we examine these unbiblical commandments, I wanna encourage you as you engage this, a a range of emotions may start to, to run up in you. And I wanna encourage you one, try not to judge those emotions Try not to distance yourself from your past and your family of origin. Try not to condemn or blast. The the, the point is not to do those things, Uh, even if you're filled with worry or fear or joy or tears of sadness. We want to name what's actually there. We want to be curious about those emotions. I'm thankful even for an email exchange I had with one of our spiritual family members, Kelsey Bickley, who is uh, an MFT in the area. She talks about just being curious about our emotions. instead of judging them, just be curious about them. Like, why do I feel that way when I think of these thoughts, right? So as you do this exercise, I'd really encourage that type of posture because that awareness then sets us up for the next crucial move, all right? So step one is to become aware of our patterns and to name our 10 unbiblical family commandments so that step two, we can take this turn together. Because discipleship requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and then relearning how to do life God's way and in God's family. Let me, let me say that one more time. That's a huge, crucial statement here. Discipleship, learning to be an apprentice of Jesus, requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and then relearning how to do life in God's way and in God's family. And let me tell you, this is definitely hard. This is not easy. And it is certainly a lifelong journey. We get to have new layers of understandings and new dimensions as we kind of grow into this. But there is great news as well. Although it is hard to engage these practices, this is great news. And I want to tell you why. Because one of the overarching central understandings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, is that when you place your faith and your hope in Jesus as Lord of your life, meaning the new boss, the new greatest leader, and the new greatest allegiance of your life, and when you trust Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to forgive you of your brokenness, and to say, I don't have to bear the weight of that anymore, I can trust Jesus with this, you are adopted into the family of the living God. Listen to these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter one. It says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The picture of the father is to bless his children immensely, extravagantly beyond imagination. Here is how it continues. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, And blameless in his sight, regardless of what, how you view yourself, how others view you, how you've been hooked on that. The words here is that the father loves you immensely. He sees you if you are with Jesus as holy and blameless in his sight. And he continues in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. Like the picture of the scriptures is that you're invited, adopted back into the family of God, the family that is actually your deepest. You are created to be a part of this family. You are created to flourish in this family with God, our heavenly father, who loves us infinitely. As Ephesians continues that letter from Paul in chapter two, verse 19, he says it this way. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but instead you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, right? You're not a stranger or a foreigner. I believe most of us begin our posture in, in thinking of God as a, as a creator or as a concept of a higher power, or there's some major distance. There's a gap in relationship with people in God, right? We have this creator-creature relationship with God. But in Jesus, that gets shifted to a father and a child relationship that we then come back into the household of this God. 1 John chapter 2 in verse 1 just simply says, John again and again in this uh, letter, he says, My dear children. John uses the language of family again and again and again because he's inviting children to know intimately the love of the Father. And so the scriptures are clear that Jesus came to rescue and save wandering children, that we might learn to live in God's family. And this is a great joy, and there's freedom and hope in this. Now, let me even take you real briefly to a hard teaching of Jesus. This is found in Luke chapter 14. Hang with me, because I think there's some fascinating insight from it. In verse 25, it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is certainly a hard teaching of Jesus, uh, but when Jesus uses the word here, hate, there's actually an understanding of a relative term. And hang with me on this because dozens upon dozens of commands throughout the scriptures teach us to love our families, our neighbors really well, right? Jesus is not undermining what he said. And I mentioned earlier that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves. right? To love, to agape, to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others, all right? He is not undermining all those statements. What he's actually doing in this moment When he says hate family members, it's a relative term saying even our deepest allegiances, all of our greatest allegiances usually found in our family of origin, should be submitted to our greatest allegiance, Jesus. Like in following Jesus, we make him our greatest love, our greatest desire, our greatest pursuit. We're on the journey of doing that. And all other loves are then submitted underneath that. And so I've always heard this as a hard challenge. Like, how do I do that? Like, I really love my spouse. I really love my kids. Should I love them less so I can love God more? No, that's not exactly the pathway forward. It's to love God more. It's not to love other people less. It's to love God more. And then fascinatingly, when we take this from the family of origin perspective, this is actually a great grace. What if in giving this command, Jesus was also taking into account that all of us carry certain baggage in our marital relationships, in our, with our own children, with uh, our previous parents, whatever our form, family of origin is. What if the invitation here is a pathway for receiving healing, love, and hope, and freedom in Jesus? What if making Jesus our greatest allegiance is actually the pathway to learning how to do life with him as the only way forward? What if Jesus is saying, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how broken, how much baggage you personally carry from your family of origin, no matter how much that was or how much that still might be, no matter how much pain you might have, what if there's a pathway to repattern your habits, your attitudes, your worldviews, and your actions, and that that can only get freed up? as you follow Jesus, even above the ways you might have previously followed family culture or, or sibling influence or, or whatever that might be? What if there is an immense grace to, yes, the high challenge that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to make me your greatest allegiance. So as we close here, we've given you one takeaway. We're going to step into identifying our 10 family unbiblical commandments. But the second big task or kind of doing the hard work is this exercise to genogram your family. We want to genogram our families. And again, in the link that Jesus that Jacob previously sent out—he's going to send that out again—there's a template with some instructions uh, for you to learn how to genogram your family, and it's plotting both your parents and your gran- grandparents, at least those three generations, yourself— Uh, your parents and their parents at minimum. It's on page five of that PDF. Again, there are even some questions and there's instructions there. So it's really crucial that you would pull that up and that you would uh, go there to, to get some kind of prompts that can take you through that. So the hard work is going back is asking some hard questions, is uh, navigating how did I view my parents' marriage? Uh, what are some of these connections? You might even need to make a phone call or two to find out about your grandparents' uh, relationship. You might not know some of that family history. So there is this bit, again, if we want to go forward, we've got to do some work to go backward. And so really, you're going to have two weeks. I'm going to continue to encourage you over the next two weeks to enter into genogramming your family and just naming some of the things that you see there, that you've experienced there, and some of the ways that that might influence you. My hope is that we as a spiritual family will engage these two practices, our 10 family commandments and genogramming our families. Uh, I want to encourage you as you do this, yes, there's kind of individual work with it, but don't do this alone. Meaning if you have a spouse, open up to them. If you have a close trusted friend, if there's someone from your small group or your huddle, um, you really want to partner with them in this. Meaning as you do the work on your own, you've got to have at least one buddy that you go, all right, I want to open up to them. In our disciple-making culture, we simply call this being open, honest, and vulnerable. As we are open, honest, and vulnerable, like God does amazing things in and through us. And so I want to encourage you, don't do this alone. And here's the final journal entry. So as you have mapped your Ten Commandments, as you have genogrammed your family, I want you to answer this simple question. It's hard, and it may be painful what you is, but it's, I'm beginning to realize that, dot, dot, dot. You've got to fill in as you've entered into these exercises. I'm beginning to realize that and fill that in. That's the awareness piece that then God wants to take us on a journey in to exploring his love and his goodness and his mercies all the more. In the coming weeks, as we dive into specific emotions, uh, next week we're going to be talking about grief and trauma and sorrow, kind of that that uh, realm altogether. We will continue to rely back upon this work on family of origin exploration as we become aware of certain things. Sometimes you have to grieve certain things in your family of origin, and so that will be kind of our next uh, step in the journey. I really want to encourage you. I believe that God wants to do stuff in us. He wants to bring healing and hope. He wants to bring freedom as we make this turn of becoming aware and then learning an apprentice. It's actually available to you to step away from the patterns of our family of origin that, that we see as, as, as broken, as challenging, and we can learn how to do life in God's family, with God's people, and with God himself, loving us and filling us with hope. May you hear these words of the Jesus who has rescued us and is drawing us to follow him again from Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, Everyone. one, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. If you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to consider that. Like what might it look like to step into his family by placing your trust in him and to begin to follow and apprentice your life to him? If that's something you're wanting to take that step into, I really want to encourage you to reach out to me through email, morgan at servecc.org. I want to encourage you to talk to somebody else about taking that step. And for those of us who have taken that step, my the invitation here is to go deeper into his love, deeper into the heartbeat of the loving father who has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray together thank you for checking into the serve community church podcast if you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions please check us out on social medias like facebook or instagram or go to our website at servecc.org god bless and have a great day